Welcome to State of the State, the monthly roundup of policy and research for the state of Michigan, brought to you by the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State University and the good folks at WKAR Studios. I'm Arnold Weinfeld, Associate Director for the Institute. Today, I'm joined, as usual, by MSU economist Dr. Charlie Ballard, who directs our State of the State survey. Later on, we'll be joined by Dr. Chris Torres, an assistant professor in K-12 educational administration here at Michigan State. Dr. Torres will be discussing research from the Education Policy Innovation Center here at MSU pertaining to Michigan's partnership model of school reform, which was launched in 2017. Education always an important issue, Charlie. We've got a uh, Democratic, we've got a primary, mostly a Democratic primary coming up here in, in a few weeks. Um, wh- what do we think the key issues might be as the candidates uh, come to Michigan? Well, I guess the first question is uh, who, which candidates will come to <laughs> Michigan, because I think it's entirely possible that some of the candidates may, may uh, suspend their campaigns between now and the Michigan primary. But... Um, Certainly, health care seems to be uh, high on the list no matter where you go. Um, here in Michigan, more perhaps than in any other place, water-related issues, I think. If the candidates, uh, d- they have to say something about water. They have to say something about water shutoffs in Detroit. They have to say something about uh, the Flint water situation and perhaps more generally about the Great Lakes, yeah. uh, which mm-hmm. are in flux. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're seeing all sorts of changes along the coastline. I, I, I don't disagree with that. Uh, aside from the very local issues that you just mentioned, there are probably two statewide issues. One, certainly are uh, the levels of the Great Lakes. And uh, I'd be surprised if the candidates didn't tie that to climate change yes. and their stances on climate change and any proposals that they have for climate change. And then PFAS. PFAS has become right. a very large environmental issue, a disaster here right. uh, in, in the state of Michigan. And uh, not just here in Michigan, but in other states as well. So, so a lot of environmental mm-hmm. uh, issues, I think, are likely to be uh, close to the fore. Um, and, and then uh, we'll see how it shakes out, but certainly the proposals for uh, wealth taxation, for uh, additional spending, for um, college, and for other and for healthcare, Medicare for all um, or not, uh, those uh, those issues I think are likely to be um, important in the Michigan primary. Certainly, when I talk to people around town. Um, those are the things that are on their minds. There's a lot of uh, very thoughtful debate about exactly how progressive our tax system should be. And uh, should we have free tuition? Uh, how, how much should we help um, college students and those who have recently graduated, sometimes with a lot of uh, student loan debt? That, those are important, um, important questions. You know, of course, there's always um, a lot of scuttlebutt no different this time when we have a uh, governor who's been termed a rising star in the party. Uh, Some rumors floating around this town about whether or not uh, Governor Whitmer is being seen as a vice presidential candidate. One of the interesting things, I think, will be how the candidates tie back any of their proposals to proposals the governor has put forward, whether it's on water uh, or on infrastructure, for instance. Right. Uh, fix the dam roads is probably a bigger issue in Michigan than anywhere else. But infrastructure um, is, I think, a, a national issue. It's something that I, I wish the candidates uh, were, were saying more about because yeah. 
we have this especially nasty situation with our roads, but uh, and our roads are probably the worst in the country, but all across the country, um, the electric power grid is not in good shape. Um, the, uh, our underground, our, our water and sewer are, are in many parts of the country are, are deteriorating. Um, the, uh, the civil engineers who, ha- who do an, ev- an annual uh, evaluation give uh, Michigan the same as the national average, which is a D plus. For, right. for infrastructure. Right. right. So I, I, I don't believe the governor has endorsed any of the candidates. So I, in my view, I'll be looking to see which of the candidates pull her in uh, as they come here and, and campaign. You mentioned uh, something uh, about the tax structure um, and moving uh, more toward some statewide issues. Uh, the governor proposed her budget and uh, there was some angst I saw amongst uh, some folks, in particular seniors, um, who saw nothing about the pension tax. That was a campaign promise of the governor to get rid of the so-called pension tax. Yes. Um, clearly, that would be a hit on the budget. Uh, g- g- give us your thoughts for a moment on, on where you see this. Well, as, as someone who probably will be retiring in a few years, I, I want to pers- uh, put forth a perspective that's a little different from what you often hear about uh, from seniors uh, uh, on, on this subject. Um, what we had um, before 2011, when the law was changed, was a uh, tax system that was extraordinarily generous toward senior citizens. Uh, 95% of them pay no income tax. And if you take into account the homestead property tax credit, on net seniors were paying less than nothing. That is, they were getting money back from the income tax. And then we moved not all the way, but just a, a baby steps in the direction of a, a more level playing field between seniors and others. Um, and um, But she that, that caused a big uproar, and we know that seniors uh, are more likely to vote than younger folks. Um, and she campaigned on uh, rolling back the so-called pension tax, which you might call the taxing seniors the same as everybody else tax. Uh, you can probably tell from my tone, I just don't think that my citizenship duties stop in a couple of years when I retire. Um, we have all sorts of uh, ways to to help low-income seniors. I think a lot of this gets conflated with, oh, the seniors are low-income. Well, that's what we have a personal exemption tax. That's what we have uh, in the tax. That's what, why we have various uh, social services. Um, but uh, under the old system that Governor Whitman has said she wanted to go back to, seniors, depending upon where their income comes from, could have well over $100,000 of income and not pay a penny of income tax. Whereas the uh, the guy who does drywall and is barely scraping by would have to pay some uh, income tax. And I just don't see the fairness in that. Yeah. Yeah, it is an interesting uh, discussion to have. Uh, your point about one social responsibility uh, doesn't stop when you uh, retire or, or become a senior. Um, uh, on, on the other hand, uh, you know, there is a uh, there are more uh, seniors uh, coming on. Uh, that means that the budgetary cost of this right, gets bigger and bigger mm-hmm. the, the longer we go as our pop- our population is is aging uh, fairly, fairly rapidly. Mm-hmm. So uh, 10 years from now, the per- proportion of our population who will be uh, retired is uh, several percentage points higher than it is now. So. Um, 
that's, in my view, another reason to tax seniors similarly to the rest of the folks because the the revenue needs are so profound. And I think that's why the governor's, she didn't issue a big press release saying, I'm not going to do one of my campaign promises, but why would the uh, uh, why would the budget not include that? Well, costs money, a couple yeah. hundred million dollars yeah. a year, and the Michigan, uh, the the state of Michigan is just uh, severely strapped for cash. You know, and and that's interesting. And this is what I think really uh, confuses a lot in the public. Hearing a report yesterday from the Council of Economic Advisors that the economy is growing, continuing to grow, expected to grow at two percent. Of course. Uh, you know, there are those such as the president that, w- that would like to see it grow, grow, grow more than that and are calling for more tax cuts to do so. Um, and yet you talk about how the state of Michigan is, is, is strapped, strapped for cash. And the, and the fact of the matter is, is that our general fund budget is the same as it was in the uh, 1960s uh, when adjusted for inflation. Yeah. Um, so uh, the fact of the matter is that we have cut taxes in this state. Tax cuts have been um, uh, very popular, uh, but then uh, a lot of voters, I think, have trouble making the connection between the fact that we've slashed taxes and the fact that our roads are in bad shape. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, it's a difficult um, thing to to make clear to voters, but I I think that... uh, um, political leaders, in my view, are obligated to at least try to make that connection. Look, um, tax cuts are not free, um, and um, and we have cut taxes a lot. And now, it, it, the situation in, in Lansing is a little different from the situation in Washington. Both places are obsessed with tax cuts, but here in Michigan, we have a balanced budget requirement, which means that, roughly speaking, if we cut taxes, that means we got to not pave some roads. That means we got to not uh, do some social services. We got to cut K through 12. We got to do something. Whereas in Washington, because they don't have a balanced budget requirement, we're now running a $1.2 trillion a year deficit at a time when the economy is essentially at full employment, mm-hmm. which is just astonishing. And, and that's another thing that uh, I guess I'm on my hobby horse here that bothers me because um, we're, we're acting as if we think that the world credit markets have an infinite appetite for U.S. debt. And so far, they continue to lend to us at pretty reasonable rates as our, as our debt goes up past $20 trillion. Um, but you add a trillion a year, a trillion a year, a trillion a year, and then if there's a, ever a recession, we know that that number will be bigger. Boy, oh boy, sooner or later, we're going to have, I think, uh, a currency crisis. And, and, and that is something that I'm not looking forward to. I, um, uh, you know, this is, this is why I'm not running for office, but I should pay more taxes. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, uh, at the same time as that uh, Council of Economic Advisors report came out, we also see the stock market is nearing 30,000 points. Right. And yet right below the uh, economic forecast was – a uh, announcement from Goldman Sachs to watch for a stock market correction. And so if you've got 401ks, you've got a stock portfolio, it's, uh, it might be time to uh, have a chat. If you have a financial advisor, take a look at that and make sure that you're protected because 
things don't last forever. Well, my, my wife line. and I are going to be talking to our guy just next week <laughs> uh, and uh, maybe making some adjustments to our portfolio. You, you, you're absolutely right that the stock market has done extraordinarily well in, in, in recent years. Um, can it continue to grow at stratospheric rates uh, forever? No. And sooner or later, there will be a, a correction. Uh, we just don't know exactly when. But I, I think um, just generally, uh, people should know that over the long haul, stocks are a great investment. Over any long holding period, several years, uh, you should have some of your asset portfolio in stocks. But of course, if you had bought stocks in August of 2008 and sold three months later, you would have done very badly. The stock market, even though the long-term trend is mm -hmm. strong, it's volatile in the short term. Mm -hmm. And if you don't like risk, you, you should just be aware of that. Right. And it is interesting, too, to note how much smaller the world seems to become every day. Um, the coronavirus uh, uh, situation having an impact on economies in Asia, in yes. particular in China. Uh, even outside of that, I read where uh, Japan's uh, economic output last year fell by 6%. Um, and so those economies are as tied to our economy as much as the Western European economy is tied to our economy. We are truly all tied to each other. And uh, the success of China's economy or Japan's economy or Britain's or Germany's, um, the United States is very much dependent on that, as they are dependent on the success of our economy as well. That's right. And, uh, you, you know, the uh, International Studies and Programs is going to have a forum in a couple of weeks about the coronavirus and its its health effects, as well as its, its economic effects. Um, the uh, estimate that I heard is that... Um, uh, car production is uh, mm -hmm. worldwide is going mm -hmm. to fall mm -hmm. uh, for the first time uh, since more than a decade ago uh, because, um, well, if you think about it, Wuhan, the city that's at the center of the um, coronavirus crisis, Wuhan has more people than the state of Michigan. Mm -hmm. So imagine if everyone in Michigan had to stay home. It was on lockdown, the entire uh, state. Uh, that would be just yeah. uh, uh, astonishing. Unbelievable. Ab yeah. Ab absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, let's turn now to uh, another topic that always seems to be at the forefront of the public's mind, and that's education. Uh, with us uh, this morning is Dr. Chris Torres, who's part of a team of researchers here on campus, performing an ongoing evaluation of those state schools and school districts involved in a specific effort to improve student outcomes through a partnership approach between the Michigan Department of Education, intermediate school districts, and local communities. Uh, their research is also being supported by a grant from the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research through our Michigan Applied Public Policy Research Program that supports linking faculty to informing the discussion on current public policy issues. Chris, thanks for being here this morning. Thanks for having me. So uh, tell us and uh, help inform us and our listeners, what is this Partnership Act and policy and uh, maybe how it's different from other school turnaround policies? Absolutely. Um, great question. Um, so the partnership reform started in uh, spring 2017, and really the idea is that uh, they identified the lowest performing schools and districts around Michigan, sort of the bottom 5% at first, um, and there were three rounds of identification that happened in spring 2017, 
fall 2017 and spring 2018, 123 schools were identified in 36 districts. And um, what uh, the way that they're sort of different, the, this reform is a little bit different from past turnaround policies in other states and nationally. Uh, there are a few kind of waves of, of this sort of reform. Um, there's a, sort of a takeover approach where lowest performing schools are identified and a for example, a charter management organization, a charter school management company will come in and take over a school. Um, there's reconstitution where they'll replace the principal and half the staff. Um, and then there are more sort of um, support, what I, what I call support-oriented approaches, where there's more of an infusion of resources, maybe some, some money um, or a particular program is put in place to turn around these schools. And what, um, what Michigan has done is, is to say... Um, we're going to um, give districts, school districts, that the, these schools are located within um, a strategic, we're going to make them do a strategic plan that uh, covers three years' time. And over a 36-month period, they're tasked with, um, well, first they set their goals by writing this partnership agreement and saying, we're, these are the outcomes we're going to achieve academically. These are the things that, uh, the process goals that we have, the things that we want to accomplish in terms of, for instance, uh, um, implementing a new curriculum, for instance. Um, and by the end of the 36 months, we're, we're going to prove to you, Michigan Department of Education, that we've met these goals um, using our data. And um, if not, there are a variety of, then you'll have the sort of hammer approach <laughs> um, of, uh, you, you know, you'll be taken over, you'll be closed or mm -hmm. whatnot. Um, and so there's the strategic planning ed element, but there's also resources associated with this. And so um, what the Michigan Department of Education does is they assign a partnership agreement liaison who's sort of a, um, someone who can talk to the district, help them brainstorm new approaches, um, connect them with other people around the state who might be helpful in, in helping them meet these partnership goals. Um, they give a 21H grant to certain districts where uh, uh, um, districts can apply and say, hey, we need um, support um, in implementing a new curriculum, but we need more money to do that. And so they'll apply to the state and get a grant. Um, there's also additional grants in terms of something called the Regional Assistance Grant that uh, go runs through the ISDs, and that allows districts to use some resources from the ISD, for instance, maybe a literacy coach. Um, they'll be able to pay for a literacy coach um, through the ISD, and that's a new form of resource, right? So, and, the, yeah. and there are 33 of these districts. So can you give us an idea? Because 33, I mean, you know, right. uh, folks in this state are familiar with uh, some of the more... Uh, with some of the problems at um, in Detroit or Benton Harbor or Flint, but 33. Right. So are there urban, suburban, and rural, these districts all over the state? They're all over the state, yeah. Um, most of the schools are concentrated in the, in Detroit, but yeah, they're, um, I mean, I, I think you said some Flint, um, mm -hmm. Benton Harbor, Detroit, but also uh, rural districts like um, Baldwin, for instance, are on it, Wayne Westland, um, there are a variety of uh, lower income, um, you know, mm -hmm. a, a, a lot of uh, a lot of these partner districts are among Michigan's most disadvantaged um, sort of settings. You know, I think the we ran some of the numbers and the median household income in partnership districts on average is thirty three thousand compared to 
uh, sixty thousand median income in non-partnership districts. So ha- half as much income. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's not surprising that these are would be that these poor districts would be the the ones that have challenges in their in their public schools. Right. Yeah. And we know historically that's not just a Michigan thing. That's pretty yeah. much all over the country. Yeah. And it's not just an urban thing. It's all over the state. And, yeah, that's, and right. that's that's I think something that's really important to emphasize because I think mm-hmm. a lot of people have in their mind. Um, that these problems are urban because those are the ones right. that uh, Detroit, of course, gets a lot of attention. Right. But our rural areas in Michigan, yeah. many of them are quite economically depressed, and that's that's, right. uh, that's not a formula for success for the schools. Yeah, uh, that's that's right. And um, it's it's been really interesting to learn more about those contexts and some of the common problems they share beyond poverty. I mean, um, pretty consistently, what we heard. Um, I I did the qualitative work, which involves um, going around the state and just talking to superintendents, talking to teachers, principals, um, people involved in this work and and systematically kind of analyzing what, you know, what 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 are your issues? (laughs) What do you Mm -hmm. and and, and looking at what explains uh, uh, their the common problems they share and, and what what's different about the rural setting versus urban setting and so but quite consistently what we heard I mean everyone said this is just uh, the the staffing problems um, the, the the you see it in the news about substitute shortages um, you know some districts we a third of their teaching staff were short-term subs um, you know, and, and quite you know, people with no teaching experience whatsoever, just stepping into classrooms, stepping mm-hmm. out of classrooms, you know, just constant turnover. And, um, and, and that's the main theme that we heard when you're trying to in- implement a new curriculum. If someone is in that class, who's never been around kids, hasn't managed a classroom, uh, how are you going to implement a rigorous world-class curriculum? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> no know? matter how good the curriculum looks on paper, right, right, right. You, you got to do it on the ground in the classroom, right. And so we'd hear strategic responses from districts like, "We want to put this really great curriculum and have high expectations for our kids, but if you don't have anyone to, to you know, to implement that, then how are you going to how are we going to meet our goals?" Or on the other hand. Some would tell us we'll implement the most scripted curriculum possible, you know, just um, this is exactly what you do. This is exactly what you say, because they were saying it's the only way we can make sure we get coverage. You know, uh, we have based on who we've got mm-hmm. in the classrooms, we need to do this, even mm-hmm. though we know it's not, you know, the taking best. away all of the flexibility and spontaneity. Mm-hmm. But but. If you've got a rookie teacher, maybe having a script that says, "Okay, at nine twenty-three a.m., here's what, what you, you do." Exactly. Right, right, exactly. So there's really um, they're in a bind, you know. Um, so have you found some successes, and what explains those successes and or uh, challenges that some of these districts are still facing? Yeah, right. That's a great question. So um, the quantitative portion of the team, because um, I work with a number of different researchers, you know, the qualitative work was just my part portion of the project, but. On the quantitative side, we've got this really um, rich administrative data uh, um, that's been developed through a partnership with the Michigan Department of Education, University of Michigan, and EPIC here. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they have done these regression-based analyses and looked at sort of what are the effects of um, the partnership reform on uh, in the first year. And so um, what they've found, um, or what we found, is that there have there has been a significant, um, highly significant effect um, of, of the reform, but it's mostly concentrated 
in Detroit. And so um, what what um, what that means is there. So mine and I'm not much of a quantitative researcher, but my understanding is um, they've compared um, the the statistical effects of this reform to other turnaround reforms mm. in other studies, mm-hmm. and it, the effect was among the largest of compared to other studies of of turnaround, and so. Um, what explains those successes? Um, I I went out and interviewed Dr. Vitti, um, the superintendent of Detroit. So, you know, this is one interview. Sure, <laughs> and, sure. But um, and they've got some documents at the district that explain what they did. But there's um, there's kind of a spotlighting effect, is my understanding of it. Um, this is just my personal read on mm-hmm. on that conversation. Is you know, oh, okay, you've identified where we've got our biggest problems now let's go in and and really focus in resources time and and so for example let's um put our principles into a cohort those principles become a cohort and we do intensive coaching on data and how to um do small group instruction with our most struggling readers so it sounds like instead of um spreading resources out thin like peanut butter and trying to address everything you focus in on one particular aspect that you're trying to address right and that seems to have had some success yeah and that's what we saw in detroit there was you know there is more of an infusion of um capacity building resources Mm -hmm. um saying other districts would do different things Mm -hmm. you know um smaller districts than Detroit would, um, they found the 21H money extremely helpful. You know, like uh, we talked to charter schools that are identified for turnaround that are smaller and $200,000 is a huge bump for them versus maybe a drop in the bucket in Battle Creek where, Mm -hmm. you know, um, you've got Kellogg Foundation infusing a lot of money. And so um, that small charter school might say, oh, now we can you know, provide bonuses to our teachers, or we can buy this new curriculum that we really wanted, but we just didn't have the budget, or we can hire a, a, a coach that we haven't been able to hire um, to help coach our teachers on this particular thing. So um, smaller districts are finding it meaningful through the resources, mm-hmm. and these kind of larger districts that had maybe already had the capacity um, we're we're finding it helpful in terms of you know okay we've identified the problem now we can uh, reorganize our resources in a way that makes sense for these folks. So you said that uh, you know this is a team project obviously mm-hmm. and uh, just the first year how how long is is the project slated to go and and what what's next? Yeah no that's a great question it's um it's a four year so we have a four year grant from the Michigan Department of Education so um you know we're we're trying to follow this through all three years so um you know we wanted to start right when uh schools and districts were identified and then sort of see well what what happens at the end of that 36 months right, mm-hmm. right. are they actually going to be closed um are what will the state do if you know certain districts and schools don't meet their goals because there was this promise to sort of say uh we're going to close you or um you know or take you over or appoint a ceo or whatever maybe Uh like happened in ben harbor um Uh and so uh we're trying to follow it through to the end there but um there's you know no one's quite certain what's going to happen you know i'm sure you're familiar with the, the budget, <laughs> including in education, has been an issue. Um, there's been a change in state, uh, the state superintendent, and mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, political changes that might shape. You know, is this going to continue, and in what form? 
Um, and so we're, we're, we're going to follow it through the three years, but, um, this year is the second year and we're, you know, learning okay. some new things about how districts are responding and how, how they're doing after 18 months. Cause there's an 18 month kind of checkup to see if they're on track. And this sounds to me like we should have Dr. Torres back in a couple I, of years. Yeah, so, yeah. Or at least, well, at least every now and then for sure. And so this was, this is a state law, this, this partnership act, if, am I not correct? Um, yeah, I, that's where I'm a little bit, I don't want to okay. say anything that, um, yeah, I'm pretty I, sure it was called the, the partnership act, right? But the, the 33, so throughout the course of this, uh, project this this three years or four years, right? That number is probably not going to grow. We're going to stick to the 33 to see how. I think this there works have out. been new new um, schools identified. Actually, there, okay. so there there some have dropped off since last year. Some have dropped off the the list. Like Lansing, for example, is, mm, is off. I see. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and and there have been schools that have been added. So um, what what is uncertain to me is you know what degree it's going to continue are we going to continue seeing schools and districts added on Mm -hmm. and um but we're we're kind of just tracking the the ones that started in 2017 and see and so one of the things i heard you say that i think is uh, that i want to reiterate it sounds like each no this is not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing it sounds like each school district has the ability to come up with a plan in collaboration uh, with their ISD, their local community, and the Department of Education that fits right. their needs. That's right. Yeah, it, it is. That, that is one of, um, I think, the strengths of this approach. It's not a mandate. It's a, that's the spirit of the name, right? Partnership. Mm-hmm. And um, the intent is to get all these stakeholders in one place to form a collaborative plan and to identify um community partners, uh, partners in the community get, that can help meet the goals, to identify technical partners that can build their capacity to meet those goals, um, and to really be strategic about this plan and bring different people to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that, that that happened really, another part of this, is we did that actually happen, um, and we found some did. <laughs> uh, others were sort of what we call symbolically adopting the reform in, in that they would they're just doing what they were doing before, yeah, kind of cu- cutting and pasting their prior plans and in, into the partnership right. agreement. Well, as Dr. Ballard noted, I think that uh, we're going to have to have you back from time to time as this sure. moves forward. Um, it's never any one small thing that helps uh, correct situations, and it usually takes some time. People are always looking for that one big thing and a quick fix, and that's just not the way change happens. The, the magic elixir, mm-hmm. silver bullet. Right, right. right. So. Thank you, Dr. Torres, for being here and Thanks your again team for having me. Yeah. For your work on this important matter. It's another great example of acting on our institute's mission of supporting the work of faculty toward informing the public policy discussion. Um, Charlie, always a pleasure. Any final thoughts? Uh, well, it, this has been a great discussion, and I look forward to, uh, you know, the next time we, we speak with uh, Chris, uh, checking out to see how things have evolved. Well, hopefully, uh, Dr. Grossman will be back with us uh, next month. We'll have uh, been through our primary. Yes. Uh, we'll see who comes out of that. And uh, as you noted, we might have uh, the field winning down to uh, just just a few. Yes. Um, there might be a clear front runner by them, but I want to thank you as always for your insightfulness. My pleasure. Uh, and uh, my thank you to Russ White as well and the folks here at WKAR for their support of this program. Join us again next month on State of the State.